0: That's noom.com to sign up today.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Long Ball Legacies. Thanks so much for joining me. We are back here after a week off. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm your host, Daniel Port, here on the Pictureless Podcast Network. I'm very excited for today's topic. Originally, we were going to talk about Bryce Harper today, and we're actually going to push that to next episode. Today, we are going to talk about some really exciting news and a really exciting player. So, this past week, the Veterans Committee voted on the current batch of eligible players for the Hall of Fame that they get to decide on and they unanimously voted Fred McGriff into the Hall of Fame, and this is real exciting news. I feel pretty strongly that Fred McGriff deserves to be a Hall of Famer. I think he's well qualified. I think he has earned his way in there, and so it's exciting to see that vote go down, but with that, I figure what a better time to examine his career and take a look at whether or not we think he is Hall of Fame worthy, and let me at least pitch a reason why I think he is, and then We'll rank him amongst our players and see how Fred McGriff holds up amongst our little list here. To dive straight into things here, Fred McGriff, he's a really fascinating player. First off, he had one of the best nicknames in all of baseball. He was known as the Crime Dog. It was a reference to the very famous cartoon crime-fighting dog, McGruff. For those of you who grew up in that time period, like myself, he was a like a dog, he was trench coat, and he did these PSAs where he warned kids to go to school, get good grades, stay off of drugs, that sort of thing. And his catchphrase was taking a bite out of crime, and that'll always be ingrained in my brain, and because of this nickname will always also be attached to Fred McGriff and my fondness for Fred McGriff. It's really a great nickname. I love it so much. And in reality, aside, uh, aside from his cool nickname, Fred McGriff was perhaps one of the most underrated hitters of his era. It's really wild. You sit down and start looking through his numbers and it really blows you away just how consistent he was, just how good he was, and really in a lot of ways how dominant he was. The thing that holds McGriff back, I think in a lot of ways, in our memories of him and the way that we tend to place him in the history of baseball has to do with a few things. First off. A lot of his advanced numbers and things are held back by the fact that he was not a great defender, and that really works against him, even though he's one of the more prolific sluggers for his era, and really of all time. On top of that, he played in an era where we just had a ton of all-time greats. We'll see here as we go through this, but Maguire, for a while, has the bigger name over him, same for Griffey, and then eventually even Bonds. They all are the big names rightfully so those are some of the greatest players of all time over McGriff but I think it causes us to forget just how good McGriff was and really not appreciate him in the way that we should as I've mentioned you're going to get the Hall of Fame pitch here from me for Fred McGriff and I want to celebrate him and then also just celebrate how awesome it is that he's he's in the Hall of Fame now to start with his career so he had a 19-year career with the uh, with several teams with the Blue Jays with the Padres with the Braves with the Rays, and with the Cubs. I think he actually even moonlighted for the Dodgers for one season, but he bounced around the league a little bit, kind of got traded around a lot, but was just really consistent. He had 284 for his career with an 866 career OPS. That's 89th all-time and 31st all-time amongst first basemen. His 493 home runs is tied with Lou Gehrig for 11th amongst first basemen all-time and 29th period amongst all players. His 52.3 war is 30th amongst first basemen. He's 50th all-time amongst all hitters in extra base hits. 47th in RBIs amongst all hitters and 15th amongst first basemen. Is 111th in runs scored and 16th amongst first basemen in terms of runs scored. So you see here, he stacks up really well both amongst the players at his position, but also amongst all of the players. Again, 29th all-time in home runs is really impressive. 50th all-time in extra base hits. 47th in RBIs. When you think of just how many players have played baseball, that's really very impressive. He was a five-time All-Star. He was a three-time Silver Slugger. And as we go through this, you're going to see that I think he gets screwed out of these awards both several times throughout his career here. He was born in Tampa, Florida, which is going to come into play later in his career when he ends up getting to go play in his hometown for quite a while. He was born in 1963, and McGriff was initially drafted out of high school in 1981 by the New York Yankees. He never plays for him, and he's traded to the Blue Jays in 1983. Now, this was a tough spot for him because fan uh, fan favorite Willie Upshaw played currently there at first base in Toronto, so he had to work his way into the designated hitter role. He ends up making his major league debut in 1986. Gets a three-game cup of coffee, nothing too special, but does get his first hit in that uh, cup of coffee. And then in 1987, he gets to stick around in the majors more permanently. He plays in 107 games as the righty in a platoon at DH. And he does pretty darn well. He... Gets 356 plate appearances that year, and he hits right away. He Gets 20 home runs over that time period with 16 doubles, 43 RBIs, and 58 runs scored. When you consider that's essentially like half a season worth of plate appearances, those are pretty elite counting numbers. It's also worth noting he walked at a 16.9% rate that season, while only striking out at a 29.2% rate, also putting up a... 881 OPS for the season, which was good for a 130 OPS plus. Again, this is as a rookie. Now, mind you, he was facing the side of the platoon he should hit against, but still pretty darn impressive to see in his rookie season. To put this all in perspective, from this season on, he would not post a single OPS plus for a full season below 120 again until 1997. That's an incredible 10-year stretch in which he put up at least an OPS plus above 120 every single year from here on out. Just a really impressive stretch of consistency and output. Now, to take that even a step further, perhaps even more amazing, after posting that 130 OPS Plus in his first roughly near full season, he wouldn't post a single season below a 100 OPS Plus for 15 more seasons, or until the 2003 season. That's crazy. Again, just a really consistent hitter who you always knew the baseline you were going to get, and that would be an above-average player for essentially his entire career. Now, McGriff takes over the following year the full-time first-base role there and starts playing there full-time, and it's fascinating if you really think about it this way, just for a fun fact. So this is in 87. I was 2 years old at the time because I was born in 1985. He doesn't post an OPS Plus below 100 until the year I graduated high school. My entire childhood, Fred McGriff was an above-average hitter by OPS. That's crazy. Unfortunately that season, the Blue Jays ended up fading down the stretch, and they lost their final seven games to lose the division lead. They missed the playoffs as the Tigers overtake them. In 1988, McGriff moves into a full time role at first base and he responds beautifully. He hits 282 with a 928 OPS, which is good for a 157 OPS plus. He hits 34 home runs, 35 doubles, 82 RBIs, and a 100 runs scored. Again, this is in his first full season. Just absolutely absurd. He finishes 17th in the MVP race that year and somehow he wasn't an all star but he does win the Silver Slugger Award that year. This would be the first of seven consecutive seasons where McGriff would hit 30-plus home runs. Toronto, again, misses the playoffs, but this is despite the fact that McGriff put up a 6.2 war season, again, as his second year in the league. 1989 sees McGriff picking up right where he left off. The previous season, he leads the majors in home runs with 36 home runs and in OPS with a 924 OPS, which is good for a 165 OPS+. Plus. In addition, he hits 27 doubles to go along with 92 RBIs and 98 runs scored. Again, bizarrely, and you're going to see this pattern for a large chunk of his early career. He hasn't named an All-Star again. He hit 20 home runs in the first half of the season and somehow is not named to an All-Star. Uh, it's not named to the All-Star game. And this is baffling to me. Uh, I mentioned earlier, he's only a five-time All-Star in his career. And I feel like he has robbed several All-Star-worthy seasons here early in his career. And I don't know if it was because he was playing for a non-contender in Toronto or if that was because Toronto wasn't as major a market because Don Mattingly was one of the players who usually beat him out for all-star games this year and he played for the Yankees. I don't know, but it's just bizarre to me that a player could be this good, this young, clearly a rising star in the league and isn't getting named to the all-star games while he's putting up six war seasons and hitting 20-something home runs before the all-star game. It's just baffling to me. He does end up winning the Silver Slugger Award, which seems to just compound that mistake. And he finishes 6th in the MVP votes that year in the AL. Toronto wins the AL East, but they lose in the ALCS to Oakland in 5 games. Now, we're going to talk about this later, but McGriff ends up being one of the best playoff hitters ever over his career. But he does not do so here. He struggles in his first playoff series as he manages just 3 hits and 3 RBIs in the series. We moved to 1990, and it's just rinse and repeat. He hits another 35 home runs while improving his average to 300 with a 930 OPS, 21 doubles, 88 RBIs, and 91 runs. Sorry, 88 runs scored, and 91 RBIs. Yet again, McGriff is the name of the All Star game. He finishes 10th in MVP voting that year, and he had 18 home runs and 46 RBIs at the break, but doesn't get to go to the All Star game. It's just nuts to me. I, I really. As we get through this, I feel like he should have ended up with somewhere between 8 and 10 All-Star appearances. And it's really frustrating to look back at this and see him getting robbed of All-Star-worthy season after All-Star-worthy season here. In terms of his legacy, I feel like that would have helped him get into the Hall of Fame a lot earlier than he did. It's also worth noting at this point, he's 26, and he's already broken the 100 home run mark for his career, which is very impressive. Now, we move into the offseason on this year because Toronto is looking to shake things up and swap some pieces around here. So they trade McGriff and Tony Fernandez, I believe, to San Diego for Roberto Alomar and Joe Carter. It's funny, we, if you uh, follow the podcast, we talked about this exact trade in last episode. We talked about Roberto Alomar. So a small world here. This ends up being a pretty lopsided trade in a lot of ways for Toronto over the next couple of years as they start winning some World Series in the near future here. But it's worth noting that... While this trade favored Toronto, it certainly wasn't because of McGriff. McGriff is great for the Padres here. It doesn't matter he you switch leagues. None of that affects him. He hits 31 home runs that year with a 278 batting average. It's 19 doubles, 106 RBIs, and 86 runs scored. He puts up an 890 OPS, which is good for a 147 OPS plus that season. Now, I mentioned his defense, and you'd imagine with that sort of a season that he would have put up a ton of war. He only puts up 3.4 war that year, and that is... His defense holding his numbers back. And we'll put that all in perspective when we get to the end. But I think it's one of those things that causes us to reevaluate McGriff's career long-term when we talk about things like war or Jaws or things like that. Now, as will be a pattern during McGriff's tenure for the Padres, they will miss the playoffs as well. Now, there would be some folks who could say that 1991 was... A down year from McGriff sure he had 31 home runs but his average was down to 278 from 300 the year before his OPS was down to 890 which was a 930 OPS the year before he only had 19 doubles when he had 21 the year before and a lot more doubles the year before that at 27 so I get if you wanted to say that, that was a down year so to say but he also had a 147 OPS plus so it's a pretty darn good season but 1992 is even better he, in 153 games, he leads the league in home runs with 35. He hits 286 with a 950 OPS, which is good for a 165 OPS plus. He hits 30 doubles, 104 RBIs, and 79 runs scored. He is finally chosen for his first All Star game, wins the Silver Slug Award, and finishes sixth in the MVP voting. Obviously, it's certainly an MVP worthy season, but he simply runs into. Basically the best player of all time in Barry Bonds. And it's hard to win an MVP award when Bonds is just absolutely dominating the baseball world at this time period. So it's hard to hold that against McGriff. But this is certainly an MVP-worthy season for sure. He was worth 5.2 war that year, which is the fourth best in the league. The Padres, unfortunately, though, do miss the playoffs again. And you have to imagine that factored in for sure in how all those awards and that voting went for McGriff we moved to 1993 and McGriff is in full crime dog form as he hits 18 home runs in 84 games, with 46 RBIs and 52 runs scored, but the Padres at this point are out of contention. So he's traded to the Braves after, after 84 games. And he ends up having an absolutely unforgettable second half of the season for the Braves. He hits 19 home runs in just 68 games with a 310 batting average, 18 doubles and a 1.004 OPS. The Braves were chasing the playoffs that year. They had, Made it the year before, and they wanted to get back in there. And McGriff ends up being exactly the spark that Atlanta needed. They end up winning the NL East and going 51-19 while McGriff is there. The Braves do end up losing to the Phillies in the NLCS in six games, but it's absolutely not because of McGriff. In the series, it's hits 435 with 10 hits, including a home run and three doubles to go along with four RBIs and six runs scored. McGriff was on fire during this series. Overall, he had a 1.214 OPS in the playoffs that year. And he ends up finishing the year 4th in MVP voting, and he does again win the Silver Slugger Award. I know if you listen to this podcast a lot, I probably sound like a broken record here, but 1994 is one of the greatest what-if seasons of all time, and this actually affects McGriff's career as well. So, as we know, for those of you who may not know, in 1994, the players hold a strike that ends up canceling out the end of the season. There's no playoffs, no World Series, and we'll actually carry over into the 1995 season as well here. But McGriff was having one of the best seasons of his career when it happens. So the season ends at 113 games, and at that point of the season, McGriff had already hit 34 home runs with 94 RBIs, 25 doubles, and 81 runs at score, 314 batting average, and a 1.012 OPS. That's good for a 157 OPS+. plus. This would have probably ended up, if he had continued at this rate, to be the best season of McGrath's career. He would have easily hit more than 40 home runs for the first time in his career. In fact, he was on pace to hit 48 home runs that season. And really, when you think about it... So if you end up looking at his career numbers... If you remember, I mentioned he hit 493 home runs. He falls 7 home runs shy of 500. And while, yes, he hit in a much more prolific home run hitting era... That 500 is a number that a lot of voters look at and say that the difference is if you're below it, you don't go to the Hall of Fame, and if you're above it, you do. And I think that would have, at the very worst, given him a better shot at making the Hall of Fame if he had hit 500 home runs. And I like to think now we are hopefully nuanced enough to not worry too much about those seven home runs. I do think if he had gotten over 500, I think we would have talked differently about his career. I think we would have voted differently when the Hall of Fame came around. And I think we would have... Ended up with a better appreciation for McGriff's career and for his excellence over that time period. So, I really it's a very fascinating what if to ask what would have happened if McGriff had hit forty eight home runs that season. It would have gone down as one of the greatest seasons of all time. Now we go from ninety four again. There's no playoffs. There's no World Series. We miss a bunch of games at the beginning of the nineteen ninety five season because of the strike, but. McGriff has a great 1995 once games do resume. The season ended up being shortened to 144 games, and while McGriff isn't as good as he was in 1994, he's pretty darn good. He gets 27 home runs over those 144 games with a .280 average, 27 doubles, 93 RBIs, and 85 runs scored. He has a more mortal 850 OPS that season. That was good for a 119 OPS+. plus. He ends up becoming an All-Star that year. He finishes 20th in the MVP vote, and... As I mentioned before, this is the first season since his first full season where he registered an OPS Plus below 120. So I want to look at that eight-year span. Over that eight-year period, no hitter had more home runs than Fred McGriff. He was ninth in RBIs, 7th in runs, 5th in war, 4th in WOBA, 5th in WRC Plus, and he led first baseman in home runs, war, and runs over that time period, fishing third amongst first baseman in RBIs, third in ISO, and second in WOBA. You, you look at those numbers and you say... There's a fair argument he could lay like, claim to the title of the best first baseman of his generation over this time period. And that's a four guy who's playing at the same time as legends like Maguire and Don Mattingly. And it's just a really impressive stretch of elite hitting. And you just listen to those numbers. It really is hard to make the argument that he isn't one of the best first basemen of his generation. And at that point, again, I've said this before, and I'm a big Hall guy, I'll admit it. But how do you be one of the best first basemen of your generation at a position which really, actually, I never realized how shallow first base is in terms of how many first basemen are in the Hall of Fame? It seems a no-brainer, right? If you're one of the best of your generation at the position, you put up the numbers, it seems like a no-brainer to make him a Hall of Famer. But anyways, the Braves do make that pl- the playoffs that year. Unfortunately, I'm a Guardians fan. This year, and this team is sort of etched into my brain. And during the playoffs of that year, Fred McGriff is incredible. In the NLDS against the Rockies, he hits 333 with six hits, including two home runs, six RBIs, four runs scored at 1.067 OPS over the four game sweep in the NLDS. They then move on to the NLCS and they sweep Cincinnati as well. McGriff hits 438 in that series with seven hits, including four doubles, five runs scored at 1.214 OPS. Then finally, we move to the World Series where McGriff absolutely shines against Cleveland, which, for the record, boo. I will hate the Braves my entire life simply because of this stupid World Series in 1995. But McGriff is fantastic. He hits two home runs in six games with three RBIs and five runs scored. The Braves win the World Series in six games. McGriff is easily one of the heroes of that series. And let me tell you, 10-year-old Dan at the time did not like Fred McGriff as much as I would later come around to liking him later on in his career. Very upset about this World Series. Really left a big impression on... On 10-year-old Dan. But looking back at it, you start looking at this 1995 Braves team, and man, this is just one of the best baseball teams of all time. It's really wild. And Fred McGriff was a big part of that. Now, rolling on to that success in the offseason, Fred McGriff signs a four-year extension with the Braves. And and honestly, he makes it well worth the extension. He hits 27 home runs that year while hitting 295 with a 37 doubles, 107 RBIs, 81 runs scored, and certainly the OPS is a bit down at 859, but it's still good for a 120 OPS plus. Just a fantastic season. He goes to his fourth All Star game that year, and once again, Atlanta makes a huge playoff run. So we go to the National League Division Series against the Dodgers. He hits 333 with three hits in a three game sweep that includes a home run and a double. His three RBIs and a run scored in the series. You move on to the NLCS against the Cardinals, and it's a true slugfest. The series goes to seven games. McGriff is a big part of the reason why the Braves prevail and make it back to the World Series. He hits two more home runs in the series. He hits a triple. He has seven RBIs and six runs scored across those seven games to go along with a .250 average and 858 OPS. Now, they go to the World Series, and they do lose to the Yankees in the World Series. But again, not because of McGriff. He's good. Across six games, he hits 300 with two more home runs, six RBIs, and four runs scored to go along with the 1.023 OPS. The well-deserved reputation that McGriff has is one of the best playoff hitters of all time, and if nothing else, one of the best playoff hitters of the 90s while he's playing here in Atlanta. Now we move into 1997, and this is where we start to see a weird period for McGriff in terms of his power production especially. We see a huge drop-off in production, and again, it's he's 33 at this point, so it's not unusual to see that happen. But he hits just 22 home runs in the 1997 season and only 25 doubles. Because sometimes what will end up happening is, especially later in a career, you'll see a a guy start to lose his power. And what you'll see is the the home run numbers go down, but the double numbers skyrocket, right? So while he loses some of his power, he still could hit it into the gaps and like out a bunch of doubles. That's not the case here. Both the home runs and the doubles really drop down. But he does drive in 97 runs that year. He scores 77 runs. He does not make the all-star game this season, and he's worth just 0.7 more, and this is a big part of it. Again, he's 33, and his defense is just shambles at this point, so he still has a pretty good season hitting-wise, and he only is worth 0.7 more. That's a sign of just how bad his defense ended up being, and how much it was hurting his numbers at this time period. The Braves do make the playoffs that year again, and he isn't terrible, but his power struggles carry over as he hits just a double in nine games, and... He manages to drive in five runs, but just the power is absolutely gone. Now, 1997 is a notable—I'm sorry, 1998 is a notable year because this is the year the Tampa Bay Rays enter the league. And there's a big expansion draft. I remember when this went down because it's just super weird. As a fan, I'd never seen anything like this before. I'd never heard of the idea, we're going to create a new team, and then— You just pick players from the other teams that they don't want, and you'll make a team out of it. It just was a really bizarre thing, and it was super cool to watch happen in real time. Now, the Braves don't protect McGriff, which I remember as a fan felt really weird at the time. He doesn't get picked in the expansion draft, but the Braves do end up trading him to the Rays anyways. Now, as a dream come true? He's from Tampa. He gets to go home. He gets to go play for the the new team in Tampa. Everyone's very excited about. It was a really... But cool thing to see, and I will, as much as I will always see McGriff in the Braves outfits of the 90s, I also will always see him in those original Rays jerseys, the sort of rainbow-colored jerseys that I think, frankly, I know some people hate them, but I think they're easily some of the best baseball jerseys of all time. And in a way, in my head, I will always see Fred McGriff in those jerseys as well. And so he goes over to the Rays and obviously the Rays are not great. It's an expansion team and it was a fitting sort of thing though for that team because again, being from there, he pretty quickly becomes beloved in Tampa on that team with the fans and he becomes the elder statesman who gets to both introduce that team in the league, make them a little bit relevant, but also mentor players. It really was a great fit for McGriffith. As he's heading into the back end of his career here. And, the first year there, he struggles quite a bit, especially from the power department. He hits just 19 home runs in 1998 with a two hundred eighty four batting average and eight fifteen OPS, which was still good for a one hundred eleven OPS+. Plus. It, he hit 81 RBIs, 77 runs, and 25 doubles that year. And as I mentioned, the Rays weren't good, as anyone would expect for your first year for an expansion team. They missed the playoffs. And we start to ask ourselves, is this the twilight of Fred McGiff's career? Is... if the power's abandoning him and he's not a great defensive first baseman, you have to ask yourself if you're long for the baseball world here. And then 1999 rolls around and the crime dog proves everyone wrong. In 144 games that season, he hits 32 home runs with a 310 batting average and 957 OPS, which is good for 142 OPS plus. He has 104 RBIs that year. He scores 75 runs and hits 30 doubles. Now, I thought we were done with this, but it turns out we aren't. You have to wonder how in the world with those numbers he didn't make the All-Star game. Again, for me, this is particularly bizarre because heading into the All-Star break, he was hitting 319 with 19 home runs. That's a heck of a first half. So I don't know how he doesn't make the All-Star game that year. I don't know how they didn't say, hey, we're trying to build some momentum for this new team. We should send this guy who is the, the face of the franchise right now, the hometown kid, to the All-Star Game, but they don't. And it's just mind-boggling to me. And heck, that's a pretty darn good year uh, for a 35-year-old to get a 142 OPS Plus season. Pretty darn good. Once again, the Rays do miss the playoffs that year, and we head into the first Major League Baseball season of the new millennium. Now, in the 2000 uh, season, he continues his sort of Phoenix Rising act Here at the age of 36, he has 27 home runs with an 826 OPS. That's good for a 110 OPS plus. And he does make the all-star game that year. They finally make right on trying to use McGriff's profile to raise the team and give him sort of the send-off that he deserves in his career and the respect that he deserves. Despite this and his excellent season here at the age of 36, the Rays continue to struggle. They miss the playoffs. And you have to wonder... If McGriff is putting up these numbers, how long, given his age, given how much time he has left on the clock, so let's say for his playing time, how long the Rays can afford to hold on to him instead of trying to use him to build for the future through a trade or bringing assets to the team for the long term. And this is pretty much exactly what happens in 2001. He gets off to another hot start for the Rays. He's hitting 318 with 19 home runs in the first 97 games of the season when he is traded by the Rays to the Cubs. He hits 282 with the Cubs with 12 home runs in 49 games. The Cubs are trying very hard to push into the playoffs for the first time in God knows how long. And we talked about it with Ryan Sandberg, but he can't quite get them over the hump. They come close, but can't get them there. And he'll spend the next season with the Cubs as well. But to talk about 2001 in total, he hits 31 home runs on the year, which again, And 36 is pretty darn good, especially when you consider the mileage he's put there on the odometer. And he ends up hitting another 27 home runs in 2002 with the Cubs. And again, unfortunately, they fall short of the playoffs. As we know, they'll actually not make the playoffs until next year, which is a real shame that McGriff doesn't stick around to go try and make that one last playoff push with the Cubs. But I, I think that's actually when the Cubs bring in Derek Lee, and there really wouldn't have been spot for uh, for McGriff on that team. So he ends up in the offseason actually going and signing with the Dodgers. And here in 2003, we see finally all of those games played start to add up for McGriff. And injuries finally catch up with him. He plays in just 86 games for the Dodgers. I believe it's only around 8 or, eight or 12 home runs from that year. And he just can't sustain sort of the the 140, 150 games that we are used to expecting out of Fred McGriff at this point. Obviously, he is up there in age. The writing is on the wall here. So in the offseason, McGriff, at 40 years old, he re-signs with the Rays. Again, comes home, plays one more season for his hometown team, but he just can't really sustain it. He only plays in 27 games that season, comes through, and in the following year, retires in spring training. Now, McGriff would continue to work in the Rays organization and ends up going from there to, I believe I want to say he ends up working in the front office for the Braves before retiring from that world as well.
0: Sometimes it can feel like food has an emotional control over you. Well, it's time to show your food who's boss with Noon. Noom uses science and personalization, And based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. Start taking control of your weight management and join the millions who have lost weight with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Fads come and go, and nowhere more than in the world of weight loss.
1: Now, this is... So, we're talking Fred McGriff's career here. And I think the question is, is he a Hall of Fame-worthy player? And there are some places where, if you go straight by the numbers overall, it can feel like it falls short, right? He's right on the cusp there in terms of war, in terms of Jaws. He falls short of 500 home runs. He's well short of the 3,000 hit mark. And if you hold against him his defense and how bad it was. If you look at, say, like, Fangraph's war, right, their defensive numbers, he is worth in 87, negative 12.4 war. In 1990, negative 11.6 war on the defensive side. In 1991, negative 19.2. In 1992 is another negative 11. In 1993, another negative 11. He just, he's not a good defender. It it gets so bad that in Tampa in 2000, he is worth negative 28.8 war. On the defensive side of the ball. I didn't even know it was possible. So for as good of a hitter as he was, and he was a good hitter, I don't think there's any way you can argue that Fred McGriff wasn't a prolific hitter. If you think about it this way, you start looking at some of the numbers from 1988 to 1994, he hit 30 plus home runs for seven years straight. That's incredible. Again, I mentioned the OPS plus numbers and the streak there. He just he was an incredible hitter. You heard me rattle off where he ranked over that eight-year stretch amongst all of the hitters and easily makes an argument for being one of the best hitting first basemen of that generation. All that being said, I think Fred McGriff is a Hall of Famer. I think you look at that level of dominance, you look at that place where you say, you know what, he has a genuine, viable argument to be considered the number one first baseman of his generation, if not one of the best hitters of his generation at any position, And that's, to me, what a Hall of Famer is. Can you tell the story of baseball without Fred McGriff? And I think of 1995, and I think of those Brave teams, and even though he was on those teams for just three years, he had a huge impact on those teams and on their success level. And I just it's hard for me to say that I don't think he's Hall of Fame worthy. Now, the caveat, obviously, being I'm a big Hall guy. I am a fan of... The hall being the hall of very good and does not necessarily have to be the hall of just the elite. So I was gonna probably lean towards Letting McGriffin be anyways, because I think he was one of the best of his generation. But I get if you feel like he's right there on the edge with just a you know upper fifties war. It is a genuine borderline case. But if you put it up in front of me, he's got four hundred and ninety-three home runs, which to me is five hundred. I, I do not think of them as being different. That's five hundred home runs to me. So I factor that in. I factor in some of the elite things that he has done over his career. One of my personal favorite, 1989. He walks 17.5% of the time while striking out just 19.4% of the time. For a slugger, that's bonkers. That is wild good. Imagine essentially at the end of the day, 17.5% is Joey Votto or Joy Gallo level of numbers. But while only striking out 19.4% of the time, that's incredible. It's a really great season. There's a stretch of time where, if you look at it, to take WRC plus for instance, if I were to rattle this off, he starts in 1988 with a 156 WRC plus in 1989, 156 WRC plus in 1990, 157, in 1991, 143, in 1992 it's 162, in 1993 that's 143, and in 1994 a 156. So from 1990 1988. To 1994, he does not have a WRC+, plus, which is weighted runs created basically as a percentage above the average player, which would be 100. He does not have a WRC+, plus below 140, or really below 143, for about a six-year stretch. So that's to say for a six-year stretch, he's at least 40% better than the average baseball player. That's crazy. That's incredibly good. And really the only thing that keeps him from being a genuine superstar from a war perspective or anything is his defense. And I'm just not willing to let him be punished absolutely for that. I like to use defense as something that boosts you, right? And we made a similar argument for Tony Gwen, who for half his career was a pretty horrible defender as well. I don't think it should keep him from really getting ranked as high as we should rank him. But I'm still going to knock him down a little bit. But again, I just want to reemphasize that this is, you're talking about one of the most prolific sluggers in baseball history, and especially amongst first basemen. It's just really remarkable how good he was for this time period. Yeah, in the end of the day, I, I am putting him in the Hall of Fame. I think just it's too much excellence over too long a period of time. So now that we've determined he's a Hall of Famer, the question is, where do we rank him? That is what we are here to do. That is our purpose. So let us look at our list. So at this point, we have now, over the length of this podcast, ranked 50 players. 50 players. How exciting is that? It's a milestone. Our top 10 still sits as number one is Greg Maddox. Number two is Ichiro Suzuki. Number three is George Brett. Number four is Adrian Beltray. Number five is Clayton Kershaw. Number six is Edgar Martinez. Number seven is Sandy Koufax. Number eight is Tony Gwen. Number 9 is Hank Greenberg. And number 10 is Joey Votto. Number 15 is David Ortiz. Number 20 is Paul Molitor. Number 25 is Roberto Alomar. Number 30 is Evan Longoria. Number 35 is Moises Alou. Number 40 is Cabrian Hayes. Number 45 is Aramis Ramirez. Number 50 is James Paxton. So it's hard to figure out where to put Fred McGriff. So uh, off the top of my head... Is he better than David Ortiz? And the answer is no. Yes, you could hold against Ortiz. He was a DH where McGriff was when the playing field. McGriff was genuinely awful in the field and should have DH. And Ortiz hits more home runs than him. Ortiz is better. Steve Carlton at 16. Steve Carlton's got four Cy Youngs. Uh, again, I'll bump him back. So I start looking at him somewhere between Robin Yount and probably Jose Altuve at 21. And this is an interesting one because while I think this is the right stretch because I I definitely think he's better than Homer and Baker I'm going to put him way above Freddie Freeman so I start getting the place where we're looking at Steve Carlton's at 16 Robin Younts at 17 I got Ryan Sandberg at 18 Jose Ramirez at 19 Paul Molitor at 20 and Jose Tuve at 21 I'm going to put him over Altuve because at the end of the day while Altuve's great and has an MVP award McGriff hit almost 200 more home runs than he has and I think that counts for something I think you got to put him above Jose Altuve. Molitor's interesting. Molitor's got 3,000 hits and has more war than McGriff. But in a lot of ways, McGriff was just a better hitter overall. McGriff has him beat basically everywhere else. Molitor only hit 234 home runs in his career, while McGriff hits 493. Over 260 more home runs than him. He has about 240-something RBIs more than Molitor. He has a higher OPS. McGriff's got an 886 OPS, whereas Molitor's only an 817. Fred McGriff's a 134 OPS plus hitter for his career, where Molitor is a 122 OPS hitter for his career. He's got a higher OBP. He's got a higher slug. He's got more total bases in less playing time. And so at that point, the only thing you can say is Molitor had more hits, and Molitor had more stolen bases, which I place less value on. Molitor was also a DH for a large chunk of his career, so he doesn't quite get the huge negative bump that McGriff got by playing for space his entire career. Let's see. McGriff's got almost 60 to 70 points in ISO for his career on him. Maybe I'm putting too much of an emphasis on power, but it seems like in every way, shape, form, McGriff is a more impactful hitter than Paul Molitor was. And then you get into the postseason, and while Molitor was great in the postseason, in 29 games he hit three fifty nine. McGriff played in 50 games and hit 303 with a 917 OPS he has more home runs more doubles just in general is a better player in the playoffs a big part of it of one of the greatest dynasties of all time really when you think of the impressive stretch the Braves had there in the mid-90s and I just I think correct if I'm wrong and maybe I will feel differently about this in the morning but right now I put Fred McGriff in front of Paul Molitor so now if we if we go up one from Paul Moller's at number 20 to Jose Ramirez right at number 19. This is an interesting question. So let's pull up Ramirez. Hang on. I'm scintillating while I type this in. So if we look at Jose Ramirez, now obviously McGriff has played a lot longer than Jose Ramirez, so we're not going to talk too much about RBI numbers. For instance, Jose Ramirez only has 666 RBIs to Fred McGriff's 1,550. But McGriff's played almost double the amount of years that Jose Ramirez has. So it's not as great a comparison. But if you look at things like OPS, McGriff's got it still at 886 OPS. Jose Ramirez is only at 857. McGriff is a 284 batting average hitter. Jose Ramirez is a 279 batting average hitter. You get OPS plus. McGriff is a 134. Ramirez is a 129 OPS plus hitter. So it's hard that to really say that Ramirez... Even if we were to project out, his career necessarily would be better than McGriff. And that's that's tough. Now, the one argument for Ramirez, in his favor, is if you look at Ramirez right now, he's already at around 40 war, right? I believe he's at 40.3 war. McGriff is at 52.6 war. Now, McGriff put up 52.6 war over a 19-year career. Ramirez has put up that 40.3 war in nine years. So... Already, he is well outpaced McGriff in terms of war and war per year. If you look, a big part of this is because over his career, Fred McGriff was worth negative 17.3 defensive war, whereas Jose Ramirez so far over his career has been worth 5.4. So he's a much better defender at a much more difficult position to play. You look and then you factor in the how good Ramirez is as a stolen bases guy who's just been a prolific hitter the last couple years. I, I think... I think when all is said and done, we see evidence that Ramirez is going to be well ahead of McGriff in terms of things like war, but while still being a power hitter on the same level as McGriff, and having the speed, and having the hits. So I think, despite the fact that McGriff has about 300 home runs on Jose Ramirez, I think right now, I give that advantage to Jose Ramirez long term. And if Jose Ramirez can somehow do a 19-year career like McGriff, I think his numbers will be roughly similar or better than McGriff's. So I think I'm still going to put uh McGriff behind Jose Ramirez. That's where we end up here. I just can't get the uh, past the idea that in nine seasons, Ramirez has nearly as much war as McGriff. By his, at the rate he is accumulating war right now in his career, he could surpass McGriff's war by season 12. And so seven more seasons to go. To keep adding to that. And that's just, that's hard for me to really go against. And then you get into like above Ramirez's Ryan Sandberg, who we talked about. That's around 70 war. He's one of the greatest second basemen of all time. He means so much to the Cubs players, Cubs fans. I think this is the right spot. So I think it's between Jose Ramirez and Paul Molitor. So that would make Fred McGriff the new number 20 on our list here we got Jose Ramirez above him at 19 and we got Paul Molitor here at 21 and I'll be interested to see let me know if you think I'm being biased here because being a Cleveland fan obviously I love Jose Ramirez and I don't know necessarily what to do in my brain about projectability right and saying I think Jose Ramirez is going to end up doing better than Fred McGriff uh, we're going to do this a lot when we talk about current players a little bit because otherwise it's hard to evaluate them because they'll always be towards the bottom because they're just haven't had the time to accumulate the war yet. So you have to project a little bit, right? And I think at that point, I'm still willing to put Jose Ramirez above Fred McGriff. But again, I worry that there's probably some bias at play there. Let me know in the comments or shoot me a message on Twitter. If you think that I'm being biased and I'll have to reevaluate that for our next episode. Now, we've ranked Fred McGriff, and I think it's a good spot for him. I think that's a pretty fair spot for number 20. I think a lot of people would even be, frankly, a little surprised to see him go that high. So I'm really excited about him making the Hall of Fame. I think it's a deserved spot. I think it's an interesting case to go over and think about and walk through his career. But again, keep in mind just how good of a hitter he was. And, again, there's an argument to make for him as one of the greatest hitting first basemen of his generation. If not, one of the greatest hitters of his generation. And I really think that is worth feeling good about and worth giving a little more attention to. So, that's Fred McGriff. So, for next episode, what we're going to do is I'm going to take and give two comparisons now to Fred McGriff. Right, Keep right with the format. We're going to talk about some players that I think line up well with him. And I'm not sure what the two players fully are going to be yet. I know one of them is going to be William McCovey, for sure, which would make for a fascinating discussion. There's also you know, there's some players that are really interesting in comparison to him, like Willie Stargell or a favorite of mine, Paul Canerco, there's a Bagwell, that are listed as a similar banners in the similarity scores. But right now, I know for sure it'll be William McCovey and probably will be either Willie Stargell or Paul Canerco, so that looking to be the next episode, they might even do all three of them if I find the time, so we'll see, for now, I will see you in two weeks with that episode, and then I promise we will get the Bryce Harper episode in, I just had a hard time lining up a a guest, it's been pretty crazy at work, I'm working like 90 hour weeks right now over at the theater I do the lighting for, so it's just been, it's just been a lot, and it's been hard. I work nights and then sleep during the mornings. It's been kind of hard to line up with having a guest on. So we're going to get to that one because I'm really excited to do the one. I really think there's a fun, fun episode there between talking about Bryce Harper and then his player comparisons. It's a really exciting discussion, but I really want to have a guest for it. So uh, I will get a guest. We'll get that lined up. But that's going to be our episode for uh, today. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming out and for listening to me talk about Fred McGriff, newly crowned Hall of Famer. Fred McGriff, welcome to the Hall, Fred. The crime dog has made the Hall of Fame a better, safer place. And let me know what you think about the podcast and how we're doing, if you have any points to bring up, or if you have any counter-arguments, or something I missed in in all the stuff that I was doing in my reading and research. Let me know. You can reach me on Twitter, at Daniel J. Port. You can reach the podcast at, at LB Legacies. On Twitter you can also email us at lblegacies at gmail.com let us know what we're doing again and if you want please leave a review on on Apple podcasts is usually where they do the, the most impact if you like what we're doing let us know leave those uh, reviews they really help people find the podcast and you can always find us there in the feed as well in the picture list fantasy baseball feed so Thank you so much everyone for listening. Have a great rest of your weekend. I know the holidays are coming up, so make sure you're taking care of you and yours, especially as you're traveling or doing anything. Just the best wishes to all of your families for whatever holiday you're celebrating and for everyone that is important to you. And let's just enjoy this offseason. It's been a wild winter meetings, a lot of fun. So much more to talk about. I'm hoping to really nail a lot of the different free agents that have gone through and talk about them and just so much to talk about so much to uh, get excited about so enjoy folks and i will see you again in two weeks thank you so much